When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to A Celtic State of Mind. This is the Action Charity Weekend. I'm Paul John Biggs and today I will be joined by a number of different figures speaking about all things Celtic. Uh, but we will digress from time to time. And and to be fair, it's not a wide digression, Charles, to be talking today about Shane McGowan. Welcome back to Axon. How have you been? Yeah, I've been good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks for describing me as a phenomenal author in the previous segment. I was... Uh, <laughs> You know my thoughts. You, you know my <laughs> thoughts on how how prolific you are. I mean, what what's your latest? Tell us what is your latest. Every time I speak to you, you've just released another book. The latest one is called The Wit and Wisdom of David Attenborough, and it's like a, a sort of a celebration of him with uh, some of his best, uh, funniest sayings, great stories about him, uh, quotes from other people about him, uh, weird facts like how many honorary degrees and how many insects in the planet are named after him, uh, a good Christmas uh, stocking filler for everyone who likes the old uh, naturalist. Yeah, I mean, what absolutely blows me away as well is the variety of your subject matter. Um, I mean, book-wise, I've written four books and it's on Celtic. They're my obsession. Mm. But you, you, the whole body of your work, if you go through your bibliography, it's, you, you've covered so many different uh, subjects. And I remember on one of your previous appearances on Axon, you spoke about, I asked you the question, if it was a Celtic player, um, who would you like to write the book about? And if it was a musician, who would you like to write the book about? And the Celtic player, of course, was Paul McStay, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I think on another one I joked and said Johnny Hayes, but oh yeah, it'd have to be Paul McStay. I mean, to me, he's he's just, you know, a phenomenal, just a phenomenal human being. Um, and sort of not forgotten. Obviously, no Celtic fans forgotten Paul McStay, but it's like he, he you know, he's sort of slightly suffered from people like Henrik coming after him, um, or not coming after him, but after he uh, retired. Uh, and there's obviously a sad story where he tried to crowdfund a book where crowdfunding wasn't really a thing in those days. I don't think it was quite as known then as it is sort of is now. Uh, and that sort of didn't work for him to do his own book, which is uh, kind of heartbreaking. So we won't dwell on that. But hopefully one day either he or me or me and you will uh, write a book about him that will do him justice. But as you said, I, I mean, prolific is a kind word, but my worry about it is if I wrote a book about someone who meant that much to me that I'd never finish it. You know, I write books at a rate of knots because I have to, to try and, you know, uh, make a living. But um, if it was someone like Paul McStay or indeed Shane, it'd be like, how could I ever finish? How could anyone ever finish writing such a book? How could anyone sit there and go, do you know what? There's 70,000 words. I've done justice to Paul McStay or to Shane McGowan. It's impossible. I, I totally get that, by the way, and and I'm up for that challenge, uh, working with you on Paul McStay's book because, like, there, there's some figures in the, the club's history where you think there needs to be a book written about this individual, and I think McStay's in there 
I think you could do a, like a Zlatan-style book on Hamlet Larson. What a career he's had. John Clark being another one. Fergus McCann. There are figures that I think there's definitely a book in there. Um, I'm going to go back to uh, a thread, actually. I know how much you love music. And we spoke, obviously, about your, your kind of like um, awakening. Uh, and, and it always intrigued me, Chaz, because I, I was basically just born into this a situation where Celtic were always omnipresent in my life, in my household, at my my relative's house, at the new year, the, the, the whole, all, everybody coming together on a Saturday to go to the game. Uh, it was a big thing in my, my house even before I was old enough to go to the games. And I love the fact that you discovered Celtic and, and you made a choice because um, they appealed to you. And you, mm. you, you looked at this, this massive... Um, global uh, economy, which was the, the EPL, and you, you thought to yourself, right, I don't believe in that anymore. It's, it's a bit mm. plastic for me, and I want to be a Celtic supporter because I like what the uh, what a lot of the fans follow and, and the whole mm. state, state of mind, uh, the fan base. I was going to say the club there, but that's a completely different discussion because yeah. some say the club and the fans at the moment are a bit fractured. Kevin Graham is joining us. He's already premiered his first EP. Kevin Graham, welcome back. Hopefully the wee guy got his breakfast okay. He's got his breakfast and he's new watching Octonauts, so we should be fine. We should be fine. That's the way to do it. Um, Chaz and I were just introducing nice and uh, gradually into the subject of Shane McGowan. Um, I've I've got a a wee story to tell first, and you might have heard this during the week, Chaz, because I did share it, it, and it's something that might happen in the future as well. And then we'll have a chat about everything that we've planned to speak about. But um, the Lord of the Wing, um, for me, and I've said this a few times, is the best Celtic documentary that there is. Now, the, the one on Lisbon for the 50th anniversary that won a BAFTA is a phenomenal movie as well. And I've watched loads of them because, obviously, as part of the research for doing my own documentary on Neely Mocking, I wanted to have a look at styles and, and what worked really well and and basically try and nick, nick these ideas. Um, and what I loved about The Lord of the Wing was the way that it was a, It was a bit different because the guy who directed it, uh, Jamie Donnan, he basically, um, it was his first non-war documentary and he did it on Celtic and he did it on Jimmy Johnson and he did things like he married up Jimmy Johnson with Jim Kerr in a recording studio and Charlie Burchill to record um, Dirty Old Town. And that song was then released to raise funds for MND charities. Um, so I love the documentary, but... What I later found in speaking to Jeff Healy, who was uh, the producer of that documentary, is that they did a, an extended interview with Shane McGowan. And then during that that interview, uh, I'm not sure if they knew beforehand, but it came to light and it was discussed that Shane had written a trilogy of Celtic songs. Uh, and one of them was on Jimmy Johnston. And he played them acoustically and it was all recorded during the interview segment. And he, and he played the three songs, which to my knowledge were never ever released and um, Jeff still has the tape. He's still got mm. that that footage, Chaz, and I love that kind of thing. It's the Blair Witch found footage. Wow, what is this? <laughs> Let's get it out there and share it with the masses. I'd love to hear those songs. Well, the Beatles are still like there's still stuff emerging from them. So <laughs> hopefully, we have decades of lost uh, Shane tapes. Um, it's yeah, anything. I would like to hear anything he did. There's all these sort of rumors going around that he sort of finished an album before, uh, you know, in recent years and stuff. Uh, I don't know, you know, whether that's true. I would hear anything. I would hear him singing or talking or any of his writing. I would just, you know, lap it up. He was incapable of singing or writing or saying a boring sentence or couplet or anything. Um, he was a very, very, very funny person. And that's not always sort of what comes across. Uh, you know, when when people are just sort of, you know, looking in from the outside, is that uh, um, there are so many funny stories about him. Uh, everybody it seems who met him had a story to emerge from it. I think some of them were made up. I know that some of the Pogues contest Kiefer Sutherland's story about how he met Shane. They sort of remember one of the Pogues saying, "Can't it just be that somebody just had an ordinary encounter with him?" Um, I was actually friends with one of the Pogues, who's also passed, uh, Phil Chevron, who was a guitarist. And he uh, told me how they'd be sometimes sitting in a bar in a public place and Shane would be, he'd have had a few drinks, but he'd be basically together. And then some fans would walk in and Shane would spot them sort of noticing him and think, oh, here we go. And Shane would then pretend to be completely off his nut for two reasons. One, to get rid of them as quickly as possible. And two, to give them what they wanted. 
Because who wants to go away from and say, oh, I met Shane. Oh, what happened? Oh, nothing. He was just sitting eating some muesli. Do you know what I mean? You want a story. <laughs> and so he used to quite often pretend to be out of it just to sort of uh, deal with it that way. Um, for me, it was like I was 14 and I was at a cult, a, a, this weird school run by a religious cult, um, which is a whole other story. But I was very, very unhappy with life. And um, I got into the Pogues via Joe Strammer. Joe Strammer was my hero, and he deputised for Phil Chevron on a tour when Phil Chevron had uh, an illness. So suddenly I was like, oh, I've sort of heard of this band, the Pogues. Um, so I sort of went to look them up, because anywhere Joe Strammer went, I wanted to go. And I just remember the first time I saw a picture of Shane, I just thought this guy is, like, genuinely, like, godly. Not like, you know, it was the godlike genius of Noel Gallagher. Like, this guy is divine. There's something divine in his charisma that just flies off the even just the page of NME. And um, so I went and booked some, like, I went to see them when I was 14, I think, at Brixton Academy. And I'd never been to a gig like it. And I've, I'll come to it, but I've barely been to a gig like it since. It was, it was like being at the best football match of your life. That's what a Pogues gig was like. Uh, I can only imagine maybe you and Kev can say in a bit, but what it would have been like at the Barrowlands. But um, this was in London, which would have been relatively sort of subdued probably compared to the Barrowlands. But to me at 14, this was incredible. Before they even came on, I knew this was the best band I'd ever seen. And then they walked on. Shane would always walk on last. And he walked on and it was like he'd come down from, well, from, from heaven or hell, whichever it was. He kind of looked like he'd come from both. But again, the charisma and the just the total presence of the guy. Um, again, before they'd hit a single note, it was already the best gig I'd ever been to. And then for years afterwards, my life, it feels like from about 14 till sort of early 20s, my life was looking forward to Pogues gigs, being at Pogues gigs and looking back at Pogues gigs. Me and my friend Lawrence, we're just like, our lives just seem to be talking about the Pogues. I remember his dad I stayed at his house one night and we were watching the Pogues live at the Town and Country Club VHS when his dad left. And then he came back in the evening and we're still watching it. And he was like, you absolute sad pair as he walked past. He's like, do you ever stop watching it? And we didn't. And um, I mean, God, I could go on for hours. And uh, But that was sort of who he was for me. And, and he still is important now. And he was remained important during the years and decades in between because I'd never, at 14, to be handed on a plate the reality of life which is what his lyrics were about nothing was hidden from or hidden everything was in there and i don't know anyone else who could combine such energy energy anger sort of romance and brutality uh, and, you know i can't think of another artist who did that quite so well all of those things and so poetically a shame and i will shut up in a bit but I think what I would say to anyone who's, you know, not done it is listen to him one day, listen to the Pogues and the Popes, Shane McGann and the Popes one day, and just sit with the lyrics. Because his his vocals were not clearest and they were not meant to be the clearest and I wouldn't want them any clearer than they were. But just sit and just read those lyrics or even read them without the music. And that is, in mm. fact, I mean, Kev would know more about this than me, but that's the test of a good lyricist, I think, is do they just look good on their own without the music? And his in some cases are even more moving without the music. So he was a poet and uh, he was a one-off. An absolute one-off. And I think back to an interview that I watched, uh, because having read your thread, anyone out there who has not read your uh, tribute to Shane McGowan on the X platform, still try to get used to calling it that, <laughs> um, go and have a read at it. Because, you know, th there was this insistence of some people, Kev, like Chaz suggested there, where if they meet Shane McGowan, they wanted him to be off his trolley. They didn't want him to, to be sitting there eating sushi or muesli or whatever it is, living a vegan lifestyle, which a lot of rockers end up doing, uh, you know, getting really fit and healthy and all this kind of stuff. They wanted to see the caricature of Shane McGowan. And um, as I was saying last night, even when I was looking through images of him to use on the thumbnail, I didn't want to use one where he looked dreadful or out of it. I just wanted to get the, the energy is Shane McGowan, this incredible punk poet. But, but I do think back to an interview, I, I remember hearing it ages ago, years ago, and it was his old fella, and his old man was going on about how gifted he was. And there was a, a sense of disappointment in his dad because he said he could have achieved so much more. And it, he didn't mean that out with the world in music. He just thought because of maybe his relationship with alcohol and, and drugs and stuff like that, it's probably curtailed 
maybe the uh, discography that we're now going to look back on because it's now a collection and it's out there forever. And as Jazz says, hopefully there's loads and loads in the, the vaults as well that's that's going to be unearthed. Um, but when you think about them, Kev, and uh, the Barrels, I used to read about the Barrelands gigs in the Not The View Celtic fanzine, Kev. They used to write about them. And there was this brilliant black grainy, really grainy black and white picture because back then, Not The View was printed Xerox to Xerox to Xerox. By the time you got it, the, the pictures were grainy. But it's like what Chaz was saying. That was the beauty of that Not The View mag. Just like some of the, the vocals of Shane might have been drowned out or, or maybe not as clear and you could sit with a lyric sheet and there's a great picture of Shane and he had a Celtic scarf tied around the um, the mic stand and, and he was at the bars and, you know, everybody who were at these gigs, it was almost like the same kind of atmosphere of being at a football game. Um, Kev, did you have the opportunity to see the great man live? I didn't, Paul, mainly because when the Pogues were probably in their pomp, which is late 80s, early 90s, I'm, I'm 12, 13 at that point, and there's no way I'm getting in the barrel. There's no way whatsoever I'm getting past the barrel and bouncer um, at, at that point. And then when they sort of done the reformation re, re, tours and all of that, they all sell out really, really quickly in that. And it was... And by the time he was doing the Popes, I'd sort of moved on musically. I still knew he was a genius. still knew he was, like, a massive... Like, what a talent he was. But I still listened to what he'd done. But I wasn't in that sort of zone to go and see him, if you can, what I mean, with the Popes and, and, and stuff like that. Because Chaz mentioned there the, the Town and Country Club VHS, and that was my introduction to them, uh, watching it with my dad. And... What really got me, there was a guy in the crowd with a Celtic centenary top on. Mm. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. wow, what's this? What's this witchcraft? What's this? Celtic <laughs> and this band and what's this musical? And a lot of folk talk about that centenary season where Fairground Attraction, perfect. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. But for me, it's for the, if I should fall for the grace of God album. Because I had a wee black ghetto blaster with one tape deck. And that was a tape that I played absolutely constantly during that season. And you've got to remember, I'm 12 at that point, And I'm going, I used to think it was a big deal staying up to watch the word. And I remember them being on the word and they're cutting it short because they started playing the song about the Streets of Sorrow, about the Birmingham Six. And they went to an ad break. And, yeah. and I remember trying to go, what was that about? Why, why? And I remember asking my dad why they'd done that. My dad told me the story. So it was an introduction to a world of, um, of for me, being an adolescent, eh, going a world I didn't kind of exist. Then you go back, and, the, and even thousands are sailing on that album. Eh, and that, that sums up our diaspora, doesn't it? Mm. That, like, that... Uh, I don't, I don't think you'll get a better storytelling about the Irish diaspora than that song. It just completely sum, summed up. And he was an interesting fellow, eh? I really, as Charles, Charles called it charisma, I just went, he, looked, he was striking when you looked at him. And it's quite interesting now when you go back with folks say, oh, he was a sex symbol. And you look mm. at him, you go, how? And on, on a normal uh, a normal run of things, Johnny Depp is a sex symbol because he's got that sort of natural look. But Shane McGowan had something about him, which was, it was pure, it was natural, eh? But when you walk Crock of Gold and you see his dad, you can tell where he got it because his dad's, um, what a, 
an amazing human being. His dad is as well. <laughs> you can see with Shane got his attitude for him and and stuff like that. And and also his partner, his wife. She she like complimented him perfectly as well. But when you when you when you you look at him, eh, and you go and some of his, the love songs that he done. How can somebody that looks like that produce something something as sort of heartfelt? We spoke earlier, it was natural, eh? It was a natural talent and he didn't care about oh I'm meant I'm meant to look like one of I'm if I'm singing Irish folk songs, I'm meant to look like this. He says, No, I look the way I look, I do the way that I, I, I do this. And for five years probably nobody could touch him as a song songwriter. And folks say, Oh, I only had that five year body of work. I think most writers, most artists most musicians would want to have that body of work. And if it only lasted five years, it only lasted five years. And it's an incredible piece. And I, 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 it was when, when I heard they had passed away, I wasn't sad. I was glad that we had all, that we had, that they had been here. It was one of the things that says the world would be a, 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 a more devalued place if Shane McGowan hadn't been here. We're getting a wee visit. We are. There he is. The wee fella. What were you watching? The Octonauts? He's bored of the Octonauts. He wants to come and talk about Shane McGowan with the, with the adults now. That's fair enough. Um, Kev's mentioned a few things. I'm going to pick up on uh, Chaz. Before I do that, and again, it's not really a celebration uh, from my end of trying to, to play to the gallery of uh, seeing Shane McGowan as this, not just a, a rock poet and a punk, but you know, the, the excesses uh, that, that obviously came with that. Um, and there was a, <clears throat> a situation, I'm not sure if I, I spoke to you about this, but I came across, and I'm just trying to find it now, I came across uh, an old rider. Uh, I've got it here from 1991. Um, it was a Pogues rider. And as you do, I fired it up on, this was ages ago, actually. I put it up on uh, 2020. Uh, let me just double check. So this, this was a bundle that, I was given, actually, from a pal of mine. It was a 1991 Pogues concert paperwork, including the, a very impressive rider. Um, so let's have a wee look here. Uh, so the management on this gig were to provide, at no cost to the artists, in the dressing room, 200 Benson and Hedges cigarettes, 100 Marlboro cigarettes, four cases of lager, preferably Beck's, um, two cases, 24 large bottles of still mineral water, four litres of fresh orange juice, four litres of fresh grapefruit juice, four bottles of good quality champagne, um, two bottles of tequila, two bottles of good quality dry white wine. Uh, and it says here, no German wine in brackets, two bottles of good quality French red wine. Um, if no French available, then Italian or Spanish will be acceptable. And it goes yeah. on. This is over page after page after page. And I remember reading through it because it, it proper fed in to the rock and roller that a lot of people thought about uh, Shane as being. Uh, but sometimes that overshadows the talent of the man, the, the ability of him. But when I put this out there, I'll never forget it because uh, Spider Stacy, who's on Twitter, stroke uh, X, he quote tweeted it saying, oh, it was a quiet night, that one then, kind of thing. <laughs> Before you knew it, the Irish press picked up on it and started running the story about this rider, which is lying in this studio somewhere, in a in a poly pocket, in a box somewhere. Uh, I must get it to you, actually. I'll send it on, because it is. There's loads in there. There's absolute loads. Let's have a look. Where was the venue here? Uh, there's a contract. I'll, I'll bring it all up. Um, it was in the Netherlands, actually, this particular gig, back in 91. Um, Kev talks about an album in 88, um, but we were going to start off by being cr chronological for my OCD. We're going to talk about uh, Rum, Sodomy and the Lash first, weren't we? Chaz, what does this album mean to you? Well, um, to me, it's it's their greatest. Uh, Shane's, well, I believe, uh, considered their greatest at first, which was uh, Red Roses for me, which is another absolute beauty. But um, Rum, Sodomy and the Lash to me was the perfect sort of album because there was a lot of ba there was a lot of traditional songs on Red Roses for me, which which were great. But in um, on Rum, Sodomy and the Lash, it's pretty much all their own work, and I just think that it's Shane at his greatest and it's a band at their greatest because. Once Fairy Tale in New York came out, the everything changed basically, uh, and some of it not for the better 
So I think Rum Suddenly and Lash was great. When you look at their their best songs, you know, the old main drag, you know, about being a rent boy in Piccadilly, um, Pair of Brown Eyes, you know, the ultimate sort of, for me, sort of anti-war song. Um, when we got back labelled parts one to three, there were no Pair of Brown Eyes waiting for me. You know, where does that come from? Where does what sort of mind conjures that ugliness mm-hmm. so beautifully? Mm-hmm. Um and his cover, their cover of uh, Waltz and Matilda is amazing. Sally McLennan is the ultimate sort of live song. I remember, in fact, as a kid, when I was first into them, buying a 12-inch, and on the B-side was Sally McLennan live at the Barrowlands. And again, when I just heard, you know, it starts off the recording with Shane going, this is called Sally McLennan. And before a single drumbeat intro has happened, the reaction of the crowd is just, it's, it's, it's worth listening to it just for that cheer. I remember, I think it was Paul Weller, somebody said of the Barrowlands card, they said something along the lines of they show you appreciate when they are showing their appreciation, it sounds like they want to kill you. And I just think that's <laughs> such a great description of the ultimate sort of live uh, crowd. Um, so Rum Sodomy in the Lash is beautiful. Carter Reardon was still there, the bassist, although it was the making of the album that lost her to the Pogues because Elvis Costello produced it. And he walked away with... Under one arm, Ram Sodom in the Lash, which he'd produced, and under the other arm, Cut a Ridden. So she then had to, she then left the band and walked off with um, Elvis Costello. Um, there's not a, there's, there's really not many weak tracks on it. I would say the only sort of weakness really on it is on Jesse James, which Spider sings. The producers put some sort of cheap cowboy style pistol sound effects over it. And that to me is the only sort of blemish on the album. But in fact, it's not really a blemish because the band have actually said, I've read them sort of saying that they were absolutely livid about that production being put on. They they thought it was sort of a bit tacky and cheap. Um, Yeah, if I could only listen to one Pogue song, sorry, one Pogue's album, it would have to be that. Even the front cover is incredible. And... I think Old Main Drag, I mentioned earlier to people, you know, encourage people to read his lyrics. Old Main Drag and Pair of Brown Eyes would be two um, great ones for that. Um, And I think, you know, I said earlier about, you know, how I didn't really live up, nothing really lived up to that first Pogues gig um, that I went to. Um, But one of the ones that did weirdly was a Pogues tribute band, uh, the Pogue Traders, who I saw just before COVID kicked in. And um, what I liked about it was was that nearly all of the cut, co- obviously it was all covers, so a tribute band, but nearly every song they did was from the first two albums. So I got to hear a lot of songs live that I actually didn't get to hear the Pogues do live. Um, and yeah, I was interested what, what to see a name. What- what a name for a tribute band, the Pogue Traders. Yes, yeah, it's very good. Yeah, <laughs> superb. I mean, listen, uh, Chaz, I, I love these memories. And when you start uh, rhyming off the track listing of this album, like you say, I love um, cover art as well. So I really, really appreciate uh, the LP cover. But, you know, I, I've mentioned Dirty Old Town uh, earlier on because that was obviously in that documentary, The Lord of the Wing. Um, and it's a song that, you know, there's been so many different versions of it. Uh, there's a there's a version of it by Celtic fans. Uh, we used to sing it to Charlie Mulgrew, Kev, you'll remember that well, um, as well. But, you know, you've got that whole thing. Obviously, that, that song was written by, by Ewan McCall, um, and Ewan McCall's daughter eventually appeared on uh, Fairy Tale. What, what was it for you? Because, you know, sometimes it's like there's a band, they're doing their own thing. You're not kind of chasing the, the trend, not chasing the glamour. And the commercial success, there's a level of commercial success that you need, you absolutely need for the, the band to exist, for anything to exist. But I think if you start chasing it, Chaz, things tend to go wrong. Um, and if you just believe in your art and believe in your talent, all that money and all that kind of stuff will come uh, later on. Was it the level of fame, do you think, that didn't work for Shane after that? Because that propelled mm. both him and the band, didn't it? That, that, the hit of that song. Very Telling New York definitely changed everything. And Shane has spoken about it in different terms. He's spoken about it positively, as well he might. It's a beautiful song and a massive success. Then. And he's spoken about it negatively, as in the effect it had on him. And so is Morris, who Kev rightly said, like Morris's dad is, you know, God, you see him pop up on these documentaries and you want more from the guy. And I don't know what age he is now, but Shane was 65 when he passed. So Morris must be at least in his 80s. Mm. And he's vegan 
which, as you know, as anyone unfortunate enough to know, follow me on Twitter will know, is a, a big tick in the box for me. But for a man of that age and from, you know, where he grew up and all that, to be so tuned in on that is uh, incredible. But, yeah, Fairytale in New York, I think, soured a lot of things. I think it soured a lot of things for the audience. I remember going along to gigs and suddenly it felt like a good chunk of the crowd were there for two reasons. One, to see whether Shane was out of it and to cheer the moment they realised he was. So as he said, good evening, or tried to say good evening, the biggest cheer of the night. Now, some people were cheering Shane because we loved him, but you could tell there was a laughter in some. There was a mockery in some as in, oh, look at the state of him. I hated that. And I hated the people who stood there passive and bored all night until they did Fairy Tale in New York and then went mad. Fairy Tale in New York is a beautiful song. I wouldn't even put it in my top 30 poke songs. There's so much better stuff out there than that. Um, and his dad, sorry to come back to my point, his dad said, you know, things changed after the fairy tale. And I think that that was a very telling use of phrasing because he obviously, in a way, he means the single, but I think he also means this fairy tale and the band started chasing they moved away from the irish sound more and more they started chasing pop clothes they did rolling stones covers they did started playing stadiums and shane spoken in the past very much about how he was fighting to keep the irish roots going and they were fighting not to the band's management would have them play an average of about 360 gigs a year now, how is somebody? Yeah, you know, how is somebody going to get through that when, even if you're just, no disrespect, that but the tin whistle player or the bassist, but once you're the lead singer and you're singing these songs, which as we've said are so full of everything of life, Shane couldn't and probably wouldn't want to sing them insincerely. He wanted to be connected to the power of those lyrics, but that's going to mess with your head. And the only way that some nights they're going to get you on stage is through ingesting and drinking various things and then that sort of toll starts to tell um so and i think it's very telling obviously i'm jumping forward temporarily but i think it's very telling that when he formed shame and the popes after he left the popes he just went bang straight back to that sound of the first two pogues albums and a lot of them were rebs as well like um paddy public enemy number one is a great one you know makes the wolf tones sound like um I can't think of a sanitised Irish artist to compare them to. I thought you were going to say Westlife. I thought I was, it yes, was lined up that, to say Westlife. That Bewitched. would be the one, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's great. And it's great. And I love the fact that he went back to that, but it shows that he had been waiting all that time to sort of try and get that back. So I think Fairytale, the level of the fame and the way that the rest of the band sort of, and the management, A, wanted to tour all the time and B, wanted to chase more commercial sounds, rocky sounds, stadium sounds. I suppose there's also, if I'm being trying to be fair to the rest of the band, there was probably a slight thing in that Shane would have been hoovering up a lot of royalties money at this point, and they wouldn't have been. So therefore, they probably did want to tour a lot because they were in this enormously successful and popular band. But, you know, they are also trying to earn a living. And mm -hmm. I suppose for a lot of them, most of their living did come from playing big stadiums whereas Shane made a lot of his living through his words so but I know that he did warn them a lot he said you know to all of them like if we carry on touring at this rate things are going to go wrong and um you know they did to a degree you cannot imagine Chaz the being in that bubble right because I mean even just this this weekend right so you're going live for 24 hours uh, 12 hours a day and then that's going to be followed up on Monday by an event that we are doing in Glasgow with Johan Yalbe. And so for a few days before it and for the three days, you're spinning plates, long days, et cetera, et cetera. What's my remedy? A big, massive uh, two-litre bottle of water, right? And it's probably not going to see me through uh, that, that particular schedule. You imagine having that amount of dates in your diary, Kev, mm. and you've got a record company and management and, and a tour manager, and it's basically there's your itinerary. You wake up in a hotel one morning, sometimes you don't even know where you are. I've heard the artists who are not even sure where they are and what's next and what next, and they don't know if they're coming and going. And often what would happen then is um, obviously the band would turn to something to get them on stage, to help them perform, to get them to sleep, etc., etc. So if you're already um, probably exposed to that or you've already exposed yourself to that type of lifestyle, if you then go touring to that degree, because I, I didn't appreciate that, that that had actually happened to that level, then it is a bit of a recipe for disaster, Kev. It's, it's dangerous. 
it is a recipe for disaster because people didn't realise how hard it is to be in a band. And, like, you've now got, as Chas says, they were a stadium band and the rest of them were chasing it. And Shane was going, I'm not interested in this. And, he, and he's been quite honest, the best thing that ever happened for him was a poke sacking. And he says, that's the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, but it's to get yourself up to perform that every night. And I've only got a small bit of it, but it's the adrenaline after it. Then you've got a, then you've got a drop off. Then the next thing you can, you've got a 12 hour bus journey to go and date somewhere else. And mentally, it, it is, it's got to be very, very difficult. Um, and it's not a glamorous lifestyle. Folks say, uh, oh, I'd love to do that, sit in a, splint, a splitter van and drive up and down the country. I'm sure it's great when when you're 18, 19 and you're with your pals and there's no pressure on you. But the next thing you, next thing you can, you've got like a management thing with going, oh, I, we're, we're doing a festival in London, then I'm going to get you on a plane and you're going to play at night in Germany, then you're fleeing. It must be absolutely horrific. I'm sure that there are worse things in the world, but nobody understands the pressure, especially when you are Shane McGowan, you are the front man, the pressure is complete. And you do have demons Some mm. fo- at, at the same time. Eh? It's no wonder he, he, he did sort of leave the pogues when, when he actually did. And you look, you look at him, eh? he done everything at 100 miles an hour. He done everything full throttle, even in back in his punk days when you see him at all the punk gigs in London, his fan, his punk fanzine and, and stuff like that. He, he gave his heart and soul to everything, and I can only think about that period where he's fallen out of love with actually being a pogue. It must have been extremely difficult for him, and but that's when business and music didn't mix, eh? And you, you hear that all the time when. I didn't want to bring it back to Oasis, but you, you talk to the members of Oasis, say by the time they got to be here now, the guys like Wiggs and Bonehead were going, this is no fun anymore. This is this is too big. This is, this is no the reason that we got into it. And I'm, and I'm sure Shane thought that as well. And I'm, that maybe pits part of his legacy when folks say he's only got a great five years because it, everybody just sees him as a pog. And nobody sees him out with. But you look at some of the things he done in the mid nineties with like uh, Nick Cave and stuff like that. It's phenomenal, absolutely mm. phenomenal. When he could go back to being Shane McGowan mm. rather than Shane McGowan of the Pogues, yeah, um, it's it's phenomenal. But as as Chask rightly says, there is a caricature there eh, of what people thought Shane McGowan was. And when you hear stories of guys that actually knew him. He wasn't that person. One of the biggest ones is Chaz, as you, every journalist, oh, he was grumpy with me, he was this and that with me. That's because he couldn't be bothered. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was in, that would have been in the midst of all that travel you're talking about and, and come downs and, and then having to compose yourself for the gig that night. And all of a sudden, all you have to speak to 14 radio stations today. Um, here's the seventh one. No wonder you're grumpy, Chaz. Would you not be grumpy as well at that point? And and, and they all just ask you why, why you're not dead yet. That was the other thing about Shane. I, you know, I, I was, uh, I'm not very good at maths, but like, I got into the Pogues in 1988. That's when I first saw them. And from then, from day one, I was reading things in the press about how Shane McGowan's going to die soon. Um, and so that's why, you know, when he did pass, it was a sort of an odd thing because in a way, 65 seemed like a really, really good age compared to all these predictions. But exactly what Kev said, and it's like they'd ask him whether he can die soon and they would try and... Uh, they would ask him about his work. And I know, I remember Paul Weller sort of saying, I don't know why people ask me about my songs. It's it's all there. And, I, you know, listen to the songs if you want to know, understand the song. I remember um, can't, uh, Julian Barnes, the author, I remember him saying, people sometimes say to him, what were you trying to say in such, such a novel? And he always says to them, what I did say. If I could have said it any better, I would have put it in the book. And I think for Shane, it was that, but what I think is most important, he obviously had demons he obviously had addiction issues and he had this but it was amidst it was this enormously deep powerful empathy that he had for humanity and that's how he wrote these amazing songs that comes with a colossal price because as these he's doing all of this touring and all these pressures that we're talking about he's also everyone he comes across he's empathizing with and resonating with and understanding on the level that most human beings don't 
Now that that is incredibly painful to, to people who feel everyone's pain when they're with them. It's brutal for them. And then he could express it poetically, and that was to the world's advantage, but it came with a price. And so I can only imagine sort of what existence was like. So when you sort of see this, people get confused because the external view of him is, is that he was telling everyone to get lost and, you know, he was really, like, grouchy and all of this sort of stuff. But yet everyone who knows him, is, as Kev said, like they were say, he was an absolutely the kindest, most beautiful, compassionate human being they sort of knew, like a sort of mm. an angel. Well... You know, people say, oh, where's that contradiction? Well, it's obvious. It's like it's from the empathy. The empathy makes him compassionate. The empathy makes him loving. The empathy makes him lovely. It also makes him grouchy because ultimately he has to try and protect himself because all of this sort of empathy is painful for him uh, as well. And I like that Kev mentioned um, Oasis because, like I said, it was the first I've been to a few gigs before I saw the Pogues, but I was 14, so I couldn't have been to that many. Since then, goodness knows how many I've been to, but I can run through some of the front men. I've seen Joe Strummer, Lemmy, Liam Gallagher, Danny Jones from McFly. No, I'm only joking, but um, all of these incredible front men. And the only one who's come anywhere near Shane was uh, and, and is Liam Gallagher. Um, uh, Pete Doherty, I've seen uh, another great front man where there is a certain amount of crossover and I, I think that they did some stuff together, him and Shane. I'm sure they did some stuff together, but I meant music. But Liam is the, the only one who came close and Oasis is the only band that came close to the Pogue Spoons. It's exactly what I said earlier on. It's that it was like going to the best football match of your life, going to see um, Oasis. Uh, again, I'm going to be sort of like, I'm, I'm going to say they were not on the same level as the Pogues, just because to me, nobody was, but they were the most comparable live experience was Oasis. And the fact that, you know, Liam and Noel, despite them spending so much of their career prancing around with Union Jacks and stuff, the fact that at heart, they're two Irish men and that they loved going to Ireland, particularly Noel, I think every summer on these long holidays, um, it's probably no coincidence that um, the similarity of that experience it's no, it's no coincidence as well that they were brought up listening to a certain kind of music mm. and that sort of storytelling and empathy and be able to capture the public with certain lines and that, that both of them have managed to go on it. And again, it's uh, we've spoken about this many times, Paul, about the Irish diaspora having this create creativity which seems to keep on coming through again and again. And I think Shane had that in spades. I mean, you have to have a look at Shane. I'm 12 year old. I'm listening to the charts quite a lot. So one week I can go through listening to Morris Minor and the Majors, and next weekend I'm listening to the Thousands of Sound by the Pogues. And Shane could drag you in, even though at that time you were a bit hazy about that about the actual story and stuff like that. But you, but his lyrics still could go like that. He, he wanted to learn more because you can't. They were from a personal level. That there was something in that if you were going to get spoke to, Shane McGowan could speak to you in those lyrics, and you were like, "Wow!" And that—that's a. No many folk have got that. No many folk have had that over the whole history of popular music, and that—that's why Shane should be remembered as a songwriter and a poet first and foremost, rather than what even what some of the tabloids try to portray him after his death as well. Yeah, he, he was a songwriter and a poet and a voice of two generations, really. And you're talking about the contradictions, Chaz, eh? I mean, even John Lydon called him a contradiction when he's on stage with, with an early version of the Pogues and a Union Jack suit singing mm. Irish rebel songs. Mm. It was, uh, he wanted people to talk. And I think, one, I think one of the, I can't remember who says this, Paul will probably tell me, but what's worse, nobody having an opinion on you, being ignored, Somebody said, aye, they're all right. That must be the worst thing for an artist. Either, either you're rubbish or you're, or I'm talking about you. I'm, I'm going to give you devotion for the rest, rest of my life. And I think that's what Shane got. And I think that's what he wanted. But he also wanted people to actually think about why we Union Jacks singing Irish Rebel songs. Have a wee think about that. Like yep. it's and no, and you talk about the Union Jack guitar and that, and knows admitted he played it twice and it was a present, and he just thought it was a a mod thing. He didn't, yeah. he didn't think too much. Whether I believe that or no, I didn't actually know. But but, but I'm sure if you if you probably ask Shane about the 
union jack suit, he probably wouldn't not have done it to provide the contradiction of what I was actually doing at the time. There, well, there I mean, Sorry, when you go. He, he said that um, Shane said it very, very sort of. It's not about the suit, but it's sort of related. Is he said he formed the Pogues to try and get over his guilt that he never joined the IRA. I mean, <laughs> there's not many bands that when you ask them why they formed their band, they come up with an answer like that. And I think it's very telling that on Crocker Gold, which is this amazing documentary uh, that was made about him recently, um, they got I think five or six different people to try try and interview him for it so you had his wife victoria you had um and scandal who'd written a book about the pogues bobby gillespie uh various different people and they all have varying de- degrees of non-success in getting shane to speak the, the gillespie but, one yeah. the gillespie one is particularly quite a uh, grueling to watch <laughs> yeah he's just so like just... Quest- oh, these questions man and of course bobby gillespie just backs straight down when he says he's just like it's fine we can talk about anything you know he's not some hack there to ruin shane's day but i think it's very telling that the one who makes it tick is jerry adams um he's the one who knows how to speak to shane uh and his and victoria's wife obviously does but jerry adams he knows how to speak to Shane. He knows that when Shane is not wanting to speak, Jerry Adams would fill the silence by just speaking himself. But you can see, and it's so lovely, you can see in Shane's eyes, he absolutely loves the man. And when Jerry Adams, towards the end of the documentary, tries to sum up what Shane's songwriting did for the world in front of Shane, the emotion on Shane's face is, you know, very moving in itself. And yeah, the fact that he said he joined on the Bogues to try and get over his, you know, his guilt of not, you know, being in the IRA. And then you fast forward to that era we're talking about where they're playing big stadiums and covering Rolling Stones songs. There you go. You can imagine how he felt. Um, that wasn't covering the Rolling Stones in Wembley Arena uh, was not going to be doing much for uh, his IRA um, guilt. Um, but uh, no, I just I, I think that he. He, he was a very provocative person. And I um, just wanted to mention, just if anyone, you know, sometimes we all know so many Pogue songs so well. I'm sure everybody watching this does. I just wanted to pluck out three Shane McGowan songs that people might not have um, heard of that I would plug out. So there's Gabrielle by the, uh, Gabriella by um, the Nips, which was his first band. So look up Gabrielle by um, the Nips. Then the second one is called The Dunes. And you'll have to find it only, I don't think Shane ever recorded it. So the Dunes with Ronnie Drew from the Dubliners, Ronnie Drew sung it. And this is a song that Shane wrote about the great hunger, which mm-hmm. was actually based or the starting point for it is an experience that Shane had as a child where he was playing on a beach, kicking around as a kid and came across some skeletons that had been buried on on mass in this beach. Um, so that's the great hunger, Ronnie Drew. drew. Um, and Ronnie sings Shane's songs beautifully. Um and then the third one is The Snake with Eyes of Garnet by the Shane McGowan and Popes. Now, this is a beautiful song, and it references James Clarence Mangan, who is one of Shane's uh, favourite poets, a great Irish poet. Uh, and actually, when you read some of James Clarence, like all great artists, when you get into them, you then spread out. They spread you outwards. So you go and listen to the bands that influence them. But I remember for the first time I read James Clarence Mangan's poems, and it's the closest I've ever seen to Shane's, you know, you can see the influence that it would have had on Shane's work. And interesting mentioning Ronnie Drew's cover, because another thing about Shane that I think is incredible is it's very hard. Pogue songs were covered quite a lot. Quite a lot of people did covers of them. I've very, very, very rarely heard one that was anything but utterly unconvincing because Shane's lyrics are so powerful that Shane knew that he didn't have to go bang, full force of explosion with them. And other people, when they try and sing, who can sound like Shane? Nobody. And if you tried to sound like Shane, if you're doing a cover, you'd make an absolute idiot of yourself. But you get these people and they sort of like sing the dirty bits with this sort of real force. Whereas actually Shane, one of the joys of his vocals was, was that he would sing incredibly brutal and ugly lyrics, actually quite gently sometimes. He would mm-hmm. let the words do the speaking. Um, but Ronnie Drew is the one who did cover him well, for obvious reasons, because he was uh, Shane's hero so how could he not and i think the dunes by the the ronnie drew when you can find it on youtube is possibly shane's finest hour lyrically 
Oh, I'm delighted that you've given us um, a wee heads up on some of the choice cuts, Chaz, because like you say, people get caught up in the kind of best of. There was a couple of best of compilations. Mm-hmm. They're sometimes a go-to for a lot of music fans who've just got a passing interest or maybe heard the hits and they just want to get them compiled. Uh, I'm much more of the view that if I'm speaking to someone who's entrenched in the discography of a band, I just want to hear what, you know, rather like if you're talking to a Radiohead fan, Chaz, and you say, right, um, tell me a song, none of them will say creep. None of them will say mm. go and listen to creep because there's so much more to their body of work um, that you need to go and, and check out. Kev, sorry, was I interrupting you there? I was going to actually link you into Shane via Finbar Fury in just a wee second. No, what I was going to, I'm going to agree with Chaz there, but, and to flip that on its head, Chaz, that's how Dirty Old Town, Wolves and Matilda, took on a new lease of life because they were Shane singing them. Mm. Now, because he could turn those songs into, into his own and give them a completely different voice than the, what the originals had. And yeah. that's genius. That is mm. utter genius to actually do it. And it's probably something that he never meant to do. But it's something that naturally happened. And uh, I work both ways. You say folk can't cover, cover um, because it's Shane. Well, Basically, we all know the versions of Dirty Old Town and Wilson Matilda, I know, were the versions of the Pogues. That, that's mm-hmm. done that. They were the first yeah. ones that brought that into my, into my consciousness. And if somebody would have said to me at that time, I, Dirty Old Town, who sings Dirty Old Town? I would have said, it's the Pogues. Who yeah. wrote Dirty Old Town? It's the Pogues. Who wrote Wilson Matilda? I, the Pogues. Because mm-hmm. I wouldn't actually, I guess, they were a cover version. Maybe that just shows my lack of musical knowledge at that time. It's but a point of reference, that's all it is. I, a point it, of reference. it was a point, point of reference, eh? And oh, I, I, I can focus sad in that, eh? But as I say, my first thought was, thank God Shane McGowan lived. Mm. Thank God Shane McGowan was on this planet because the world would have been, the artistic world would be in a, a poorer place if it's Shane McGowan, no being on this planet. And big, that, that, that was and I'm quite glad his funeral became an absolutely big hooling. Mm. <laughs> because that's what he would have wanted. Um I don't know if you've seen it, Chaz. Have, have you seen you you two doing uh, Streets of Soho at the Rainy Night in Soho? I Rainy Night in I yeah. Rainy Night in Soho and in, in the 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 dome in Las Vegas. Yeah, and they changed played with the lyrics, I think. Yes, they did. I know yeah. a lot of folk are slagging it, and I'm going, what? Have? But I'm going, it was great. I, they just went, no, we're going to do this. We haven't rehearsed it. We're just going to try and yeah. work, our, work our way through it. And that's a massive tri- tribute, uh, tribute as well, that they've got this show, which has cost millions and millions and millions of pounds, that they've rehearsed to the nth degree, and they've decided on that night, no, we're going to try and do this. And mm-hmm. it, that shows you, because that's money. That's yeah. noting time off everything or in there. Eh? Uh, some, some of the tributes have been Nick Cave at the funeral, man. Oh, no. mm. I'm always going to cry any time I watch that. Oh, uh, yeah, it's, absolutely. It's... Kev, you mentioned about uh, just being glad that, that you lived. And uh, one of the big reasons for me is you, you, there's sometimes a conveyor belt of certain types of artists and you know you'll get another one. You know, bands are the same. You hear a band, you think, all right, I might be into them for a couple of albums and there'll be another one comes along that can fill that void that they give me. Um, and I don't think there will be another Shane McGowan. You know, this is the this is the thing. He was a unique talent. And I said I was going to link you into, it's a tenuous link to Finbar Fury. I don't know if you caught this earlier on, Chaz, but uh, Kevin has now co-written a song with, with Finbar or he, he's got a co-credit with Finbar Fury. Uh, for the Celtic Cross Collective, which was phenomenal. And I loved that version uh, that Finbar did, uh, the Green Fields of France with we Christy Dignam of Aslan. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because, obviously, as well as losing Shane, we've lost Christy, we've lost Sinead O'Connor um, this year as well. Chaz, phenomenal artists, all Irish artists, and the world is an emptier place without these people in it. It is, it is. And I, I love the way Sinead O'Connor and uh, Shane McGowan's story crossed because around the time he was in the Popes, he was like very, very heavily into heroin. And I think one, definitely one, possibly two people died in his flat around this time um, during sessions, I think. Um, 
And Sinead O'Connor actually grassed Shane up to the cops and she took a lot of flack from the Pogues fan base for that. Um, but ultimately he later thanked her for it and sort of said that that was a big sort of what that was a wake up call uh, in his life. And but I don't know if you've seen the Crocker goal, but when he, there was a 60th birthday tribute to Shane in, on stage in, in Ireland, and it was a very emotional evening and the way that she sort of when he was on stage like in his wheelchair and it was clearly everything was getting too much for him it was her and and victoria shane's wife who sort of ran over and just gave him a little hug just to sort of get him through the bit and interesting kev mentioned nick cave because i believe that the last time shane sang on stage was that night and it was a duet with nick cave doing summer in siam which was one of the you know the uh, in that latter era of shane and the pogues that was one of the better songs and you know shane was struggling to do it um because he was physically very ill at the stage hadn't been on on stage for a long time but it was very nice when you watch it just google it you know or youtube it nick cave summer in siam shane mcgowan and you can see how the empathy i don't want to keep using the word empathy but the love for emanating from nick cave he's looking into shane's eyes he's trying to guide him through this very it's a very simple song lyrically and um he certainly collected um some fans and shane being loved by people he loved was a big big deal for him if you ever watch him when they duetted with the dubliners it's like watching the naughtiest boy being a good boy for five minutes because he's next to Ronnie Drew and he keeps looking around to Ronnie Drew. He can't believe it. It's like if we were on stage or met Shane McGowan, he, Shane McGowan is like that with Ronnie Drew and it's absolutely beautiful. And he was just a, a very, um, yeah, a very beautiful guy. And, you know, I've told the story a million times, so I won't do the full, but you know, he is, that's why I'm a Celtic fan is because got into the Pogues, heard the song, the Birmingham six, joined the Birmingham Six campaign and travelled around London or Britain as a teenager, sort of campaigning for the Birmingham Six. And there were these Irish guys in the group who just talked. Paul, you hardly mentioned Celtic compared to what these people did, even with all your podcasting and everything. They were Celtic mad. So inevitably, I got into Celtic sort of through them. And suddenly I thought, having grown up an Arsenal fan, the British Army connection with the Arsenal sort of history never sat well with me. But the Celtic uh, Foundation story did sit well with me, even though it's not my story. It, it relates to how I see the world. And um, that's down to Shane. Me sitting in high security prisons, visiting the Birmingham Six. Got Paddy Hill opposite you, the funniest guy I've ever met. That table is a mass murderer, that table. You know, as a kid, this was mad. But it, it, it all made sense at the time because of Shane, because Shane's way of looking at the world being in a maximum security prison at the age of 15 visiting sat around some of Britain's most notorious prisoners just made sense. I'll tell you what, Jazz, I love your story. We we dived into it a lot deeper in one of your previous appearances on a Celtic State of Mind. So um I would I would implore anyone to go and watch that. It's on the channel on YouTube, but also check out a piece that you wrote for Axom.net as well for the blog, which is phenomenal. Go and seek it out because I'd love to think that if I just dropped onto this earth and had never heard about Scottish football or any of the teams that I would choose Celtic. And you did. You know, you had that choice. 99.9% of people don't. They're born into this environment where generations of their family have been part of this. And uh, you chose the uh, the life of a Celtic fan, which I think is phenomenal. And it's great that you're still able to come up um, as well. What a brave lad you were at 15. I had a paper round at 15, Chaz, man. Uh, <laughs> Tony Cassidy, morning, Chaz. Tony, you're morning, a great Tony. supporter. Absolutely. Great supporter of Axom, and um, it's always brilliant to see you in the chat. A couple of wee comments before we boost onto the uh, the third the third instalment of the charity weekend. Sean, uh, Paul McStay, my favourite cell. That book has to happen. I may come out in my writing retirement to, to help Chaz uh, <laughs> with that one. And uh, Yeto, I hope I've pronounced your name properly. Uh, you will be on this charity weekender with Liam Carrigan. Uh, we're going to be doing a, a wee test stream very, very shortly. And, of course, you will be on with Liam at 12 o'clock. And you will be um, benefiting anyone who is tuning in from Japan because you'll be talking about Celtic in Japanese. So there you go. We've got a bit of everything today on a charity weekender. And Stephen um, as well, great, another Axon weekend. Hopefully we can raise loads of cash for 
we, Jamie Tierney, the link is underneath this video. I wanted to bring this up because Fanny Weldon, uh, again, is a long-time supporter of Axon, and he knows his music. Morning, Chaz. I'm a massive Shane and the Pogues fan since the demo days. Seen them mm. many, many times. He was my favourite songwriter and poet. I mean, there's, there's somebody that you could probably just sit for a couple of hours and talk about the Pogues <laughs> to Fanny, I'm sure, as well, Chaz. Um, and it's great. Uh, definitely. Um, here's another one. Just before we go, here's another one here. Um, the Barrowland gigs were so cathartic. The Jockstein chant at a man you don't meet every day was emotionally phenomenal. Um, so, yeah, thanks for getting involved. And by the way, here's a thing as well. Um, thoughts on the hoops is Laura Bradburn. Laura is going to be joining me at uh, one o'clock. Uh, Laura is going to be getting involved in the charity weekender as well. Um, as you guys know, I have a preference for a different kind of Irish band. What she means <laughs> is Westlife, by the way. Mm. But even I couldn't help but love Shane. Um, or was it Boys Own? Kev, you'll need to help me out. I, I can never tell the difference between the two of them. It's like Des O'Connor and, and uh, Bob Monkhouse. I thought they were the same person. Westlife <laughs> and Boys Own were a bit like that. Um, Shane had something about him that was just magnetising. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, I've got to thank you again, uh, Chaz. It's always a pleasure. We could do it more often if you weren't so busy writing um, because you're a, a busy, busy man. But thank you very much for joining us on the charity weekend. Hopefully we can raise... I know there's loads more to talk about. This is the thing. We've only got through half of what we wanted to talk about. Um, please join us uh, on the channel, on YouTube, and on the socials, where I'll be joined by the Celtic Report. Scott's going to be joining me, and we're going to have a wee chat about Celtic on there. Uh, thanks, everybody, for getting involved so far. Okay. Uh, keep with us throughout the weekend. We're going to be covering the game and everything else as well. Thank you to Chaz and Kevin Graham for joining me on a Celtic State of Mind. See you later. Thank you. Yes. Good luck. Network.